Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Once you've burned a bridge... It takes a long time to rebuild it. And the landscape is littered with burnt bridges. It's it like, makes transport very complicated. It's like, all, it's like Arnhem. It's like a ditch. It looks like the aftermath of Passchendaele. It's going to take a lot of, lot of uh, yeah, repairing. So, uh, this is a word podcast. I'm David Hepworth. I'm joined first thing on Thursday morning by... Matt Hall. And... Mark Ellen. And I tell you what, chaps, we do this thing normally where we say things that we've learnt this week. Oh, yeah. And I realised this morning while lying in bed, I hadn't really learnt anything. <laughs> or I couldn't call to mind anything I'd learnt. It's a wasted week. It's a wasted <laughs> week. Do you want us to film for you? And so, <laughs> do you want us to have learnt two things? I'm going to have learnt, I've learned loads of things in between getting up this morning and coming here. Oh, right, go today. on. Okay. That's good. Rowan Atkinson opened last night in Oliver... Uh, to very you know, approving reviews, uh, playing Fagan. Cameron McIntosh, the producer, has been trying to get Ryan Atkinson to do this for 15 years. And he's played hard to get. But he did it three years ago in his, in his son's school production. Fantastic. Isn't that really good? Yeah. Rowan Atkinson? Yes. Came on? In his son's. In this, in this man's producer's son's production? Yeah, in his son's school production. That's extraordinary. Why didn't we know? I'm surprised that wasn't publicised. That's good. Two. Dave, the world is better already. George II died on the lavatory. I think I knew that. Okay, fine. So Dave. George and Elvis. George. Those, those two. Probably many others. Was, <laughs> was George II also to, uh, partial to a fried squirrel peanut butter sandwich? <laughs> Colossal quarter pounder with cheese. And third. And just turned his toes up. And thirdly, I learnt... The definition of claptrap. Go on. Do you know this? No. Is it sexual? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. I can't get that out of my head. I learned this definition while listening to, while eating my porridge this morning, a national public radio broadcast from the United States about the history of applause, which is an interesting subject. A claptrap... There's a device put in a performance oh. to encourage people to clap. So, people like Beethoven. Apparently, Beethoven is full of clap traps. That's brilliant. Right at the end of a movement, there'll be a very clear, you know, duh ending and silence. Now's your chance. It's the equivalent of holding up a big card saying, applaud now, in studio audiences. 
Which made me think that actually... Sorry, Matt, go on. But how did it go from being a system of applause to now being rubbish? Old gibberish. What do, you, what, what do you mean? Oh, so how, how, how did it clap? Well, I suppose it regarded as something kind of superficial and, you know, cheap. Uh, cheap trick, I suppose. That's, that's yeah. probably one of the, you know, one of the der- derivations of it, I suppose. Um, but I was intrigued by this because I was thinking about... I think rock bands have missed a trick that they could learn from Beethoven there. Because how many times, I'm going to ask you, do you go to rock band shows where they do really long endings for numbers, with the result that half the audience is thinking, shall I clap yet, or shall I not? And you don't want to be the one that claps first and discovers that was only a little break in uh, what is apparently to everyone else a very well-known recorded piece of music, because it makes you look like a bit of a Johnny-come-lately to the whole you know, concept. But why? Why do bands do that kind of rock bands? Do incredibly long closing chords, don't they? In a way that jazz groups don't, and no other form of music does. Is that right? Uh, no, I suppose, I suppose they're just not quite as engineered. I mean, classical music... I, I interviewed Humphrey Littleton once, and he was absolutely fantastic about this. He was talking about how, how brilliantly engineered most classical music is to produce precisely the audience reaction you're talking about. You know, they're, they're structured in, in, in um, uh, storyboards. You know, they're like cliffhangers <laughs> in novels. Do you know what I mean? They're like the episodes of a Hardy novel. And when, when they want you to dance, they, if they were gavotte writers or, or whatever, when they want you to dance, want you, when they want you to change pace, they do it very specifically with uh, little triggers that announce this is about to arrive. It's brilliant. But as, you know, maybe rock musicians aren't quite as bright or, or, or far-seeing, Dave, as some of our great classical and jazz composers. That's okay. my conjecture. I don't know. Is it possible also, <laughs> Mark? Yeah, I'm, I'm consulting you because you are our resident member of a rock band, mm. the Love Trousers. Thank you for the plug. <laughs> no problem. Fully available for and, uh, yes. 70th birthday <laughs> parties. Weddings and bar uh, is it possible that when bands are playing these really sustained closing chords and the drummer is thrashing away on the cymbals and, you know, the, the bassist is thrumming away on the same note, is it possible... Good word, thrumming. thrumming. <laughs> that implies more than one finger going at once. <laughs> is it possible that they're all looking at each other thinking, I don't know when to stop, therefore I'm going to keep going? It is possible. Normally it's the drummer. Who is, or actually, or, or actually, the drummer is being tipped off by the musical director, who's often a sort of uh, goateed bass player, and uh, there's usually somebody who turns around and gives someone the wink. But then again, he's often taking directions from the singer, who's sitting there thinking how long he can milk this moment for, and then tips off the guy to tell but the you drummer see, to the stop. The singer is not singing at that point. I'm talking about the you know the final kind of that can go on for a minute, can't it? It's a brilliant idea. It might make a good comedy sketch, actually. The what? song that never ends. <laughs> just a load of, a load of perspiring session musicians going, what the hell? <laughs> How much is this going to go? I went to a Bert Jansch concert once, his 60th birthday at the South Bank, at the Lady Margaret Hall, where it's called. Um, Queen Elizabeth Hall? That's yeah, right, QEH. Like, Lady Margaret. What's that? That's the name of a school, isn't it? What? Lady Margaret Hall. What? Queen Eleanor Hall. <laughs> We're playing like, it's like playing yeah. Benny Dorm. Sorry, it's been early in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> the Lady Margaret Hall, that's brilliant. And, uh, yeah, and he, uh, he played a song, he did a thing with Johnny Marr and, um, Bernard Butler and all sorts of old pals. And they played a song they clearly hadn't rehearsed. And it actually stopped in the middle. It slowed down to the point where I was looking at each other and it ground to a halt. Fantastic. I've never seen that ever happen before. This is only a 12 bar blues as well. People just didn't know. It lost the will to live. <laughs> 
As did I think many members of the audience. Woke up this morning, didn't know how to finish. Didn't know how to finish my song. That's right. You had done something wrong. That's right. They were playing a saloon in Louisiana, would it? Well, people would throw bottles. It really matter there. Yeah, I think they'd find that their cars might be torched. Might be able to hightail it out without getting a payment. So, moving on seamlessly from the subject of of applause. To the subject of the presidential inauguration, which is next week, I think. Mm-hmm. It is. Uh, I've been reading a piece about the, the history of the inaugural speech, which is now obviously a huge media event. And this piece points out that it's only recently that these have been, since they've been taken over by professional speechwriters that they become a succession of lines that are intended primarily to elicit applause. Well, back to the, the point trap. of a speech now... It's is built of claptraps. Brilliant. It's built of claptraps. And they point out that when Roosevelt made his famous speech, uh, we have nothing to fear but fear itself, nobody applauded. Because they didn't know what it meant. <laughs> whereas, whereas when uh, Bill Clinton made his last State of the Union address, it was uh, interrupted for applause 120 times. And even in the case... Did of he Bill have to start saying, calm down, calm down, <laughs> freeze yourselves? <laughs> for every minute of George Bush's State of the Union address, there was 29 seconds of applause. Every minute, there was 29 seconds of applause. How much of that was on tape? You just hit a button. Not a, none at all. It's, it's, don't you think it's interesting? Incredible. They, you know, they now just construct these things as it's bullet points, you know, uh, that, that can be extracted to go on the, on the news. Yeah. Because nobody is going to hear the whole thing. Bullet points that are being speech. warmly received. Yes. And also, you've got to give the, the indication immediately that, that, the, that the speech is a success, I suppose. You, you haven't got to win over an audience. The audience have to appear already won over from, from the off. Don't they? And who decides whether it's a success? When, when Gordon Brown speaks at the Labour conference, who decides whether it's a success? I'll tell you, the six o'clock news decide. Because they decide whether to lead on it or not, don't they? Well, they're always going to lead on it, aren't they? Nobody's got a very good reception today when he said so-and-so, bullet point. Nobody's going to go next Tuesday and in other news. I don't think so. (laughs) Charles Charles Kennedy's famous speech when he's uh, uh, damp with perspiration, clearly been up all night on the (laughs) scotch. That's right. I think they led with that, Dave. It was an (laughs) all-time catastrophe. (laughs) Talking of of catastrophic speeches, isn't it wonderful that the new edition of Word magazine contains a piece about catastrophic speeches? Uh, uh, the very, very, which we put together obviously in December. Um, uh, uh, prophetic, really, because Kate Winslet has made that piece seem extraordinarily contemporary. For about one day, we seemed like a daily newspaper. And who, also. Who responded to Kate Winslet? Not just Kate Winslet, it's also Sasha Baron Cohen at the same thing. Did you see his? No, I, no, I haven't, oh, no. Dreadful. Was it really bad? Yeah. He went out there and he. he this was did... after the Ricky Gervais, wasn't it? This was after Ricky Gervais got up and said about um, extras, which obviously very few people in either the Golden Globes audience or the watching television audience will have seen, where he got Kate Winslet to um, play a, a nun in That's a right. uh, Holocaust movie. To get an because Oscar her line him. was, that he gave her to say, was, I'm, the only reason I'm doing this is to get an Oscar. And he got up and said, see, Kate, I told you, play a Holocaust movie and you'll get an award. And of course, the vast majority of people there just thought, 
that's really bad taste. Of course, they would no <laughs> idea. Without any idea of the reference. not connected that no, not at, at all. all. Oh, that's just... So then, Sasha Baron Cohen came Sacha on. Sasha Baron Cohen goes up and does what is clearly a scripted um, supposed ad-lib, which is, you know, recession is hitting in Hollywood very, very hard. And the, uh, you know, the, the culminating line is, Madonna, Madonna's even had to let one of her personal assistants go, sorry, Guy Ritchie. Now, it's not very funny. He delivered it... <laughs> it made me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's quite amusing. <laughs> he delivered it very poorly, and it died, it died like, like a louse in a, in a Russian's beard. beard. <laughs> right across the room, you could see... Passing bird life was dropping yeah. stone dead out the sky. Tumbleweed. Tumbleweed. A distant church bell. Was... The, <laughs> the cawing of rooks. <laughs> the sound of a distant rook. tumbrel. <laughs> Mind you, Kate Winslet. Kate Winslet. Do you know, there was, they used to, uh, one of the newspapers I was reading the day after, I can't remember what it was, they used a brilliant adjective on the cover of the uh, newspaper to trail a transcript of the speech and a report of this uh, debacle on page three. And it said, her excruciating speech, see page three. I thought that was a great word to use. People never usually use that, do they, in the, in the grammar of, of, uh, of front covers, because it's a very long and cumbersome and multisyllabic <laughs> concept. But it was but a excruciating. Word yeah. But the, the, I mean, the point that I'm sure a million other people have, have made is that Actors depend so much on scripts, don't they? Virtually everything they say. Had she only won one award, Dave, it would have been fine. That was her second award. She had com- prepared a speech for her first award, which is apparently very, very, very contained, yeah. uh, very dignified, uh, very short as well, very controlled, and then obviously had used up all of that. Uh, characteristic by the time she was called up to get a second one. The it line, just completely went to pieces. The line that I liked from the various kind of reports on it, um, somebody said she, sh- she showed uh, how posh she actually is by, by at one point saying to herself, gather, 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 which, as this writer pointed out, probably hadn't been used in public since uh, the Mitford sisters gathered together <laughs> sometime in 1935. Gather yourself. Oh, gather, gather's brilliant. It's very actress. actressy talk. It's a very actress. That's very what's my kind of, motivation in, here. Let's you know. get into the moment. Gather. That's, I love it. It's like kind of a period drama. <laughs> so which matters, you know, in the kind of vast range of human achievements and awards... What matters most, okay? A Golden Globe for Best Actress or the Nobel Peace Prize? <laughs> Go on, just have a, have a bit of a stab. Well, I, I think I can see which way you're engineering this, but uh, I would suspect it's probably the Nobel Peace Prize. Have you ever seen anybody turn up for the Nobel Peace Prize and then dissolve into floods of tears? No, but I've got to say the Nobel Peace Prize, I don't think, is carried, carried live on... Uh, the entertainment channel. Well, it would be in you, sh- you should see them when they're told about it, Dave. They're absolutely in bits. It's just it's not on telly. <laughs> oh, it's just got to... It's gotten worse, though, hasn't it? It's gotten more hysterical. Well, actually, is the, is the Nobel Peace Prize actually just as vacuous a prize as... I'm the, not talking about... I'm not arguing about the prize. I'm arguing about the... The acting fraternity seem to feel that they're entitled to respond to these things in a way that nobody else does. Musicians don't get up for a Grammy and burst into floods of tears. You know, Ronaldo picks up World Footballer of the Year. I don't think he cried. He probably didn't well. even mention his mother. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. You know, I think he did mention his mother, actually. Okay. But in, in a <laughs> relatively... Some other people's mothers, too, in rather an unflattering light. In a but relatively anyway. restrained fashion, as compared to Johnny Actor. He feels that this or is... Or Josephine Actor. 
this is kind of recognising my value as a human being, rather than the fact I lucked into another decent part. Do you know what I find a bit dispiriting is that they seem to be so desperately keen to win these awards in the first place. You know, the, the notion that Spielberg hadn't won an Oscar for all those years became of international importance. It was well, loads of it. Charles, Charlie Chaplin never won one. Hitchcock never won one. They, at the end, uh, John Wayne, they had to give him a special one, didn't they? But I was listening to an interview um, with uh, Stephen Ray, the um, Irish actor, the other day, who was talking about being nominated. He's only ever been nominated for an Oscar. And he was saying that, actually, in terms of Hollywood... In, in, in the UK, people kind of, pff, nobody remembers whether or not Stephen Ray was nominated for an Oscar or what the film was or whatever. In Hollywood, it really matters. If you've yeah. got that on your CV, 10 or 11 years later, you can get interview, you can get jobs. Yeah, because, and get paid twice as much. Yeah, because you've been nominated. It's the value system. Yes. It's the only thing that matters in Hollywood. Don't you think, it just struck me that Matt's voice is fantastic for, for, rock, for radio. Don't you think? Oh, thank you. You should have a Radio 2 show <laughs> early on Sunday mornings playing those romantic ballads. Yeah, but that would mean I Alan Jones was out of a job. That's true. <laughs> and I wouldn't want to, it I wouldn't want to force that on him. Yeah. It's a great shame we're going to have to let him go, isn't it, really? It is. That we've, true, been, we've had to fire Matt. <laughs> It, it, I've got to say, if I'd known, then I would have, um, I would have reined back the, uh, the demands that my agent put to me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, we'll talk about more of that, more about that. More hobnobs. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes. yeah, yeah. The Word, a magazine, a website, a podcast, a way of life. Did you, did you <laughs> see the picture of Amy Winehouse uh, crawling on hands and knees towards the bar in the hotel? <laughs> I, I, you know, I know what you're going to say, but you know, I I'm think not saying anything. I think, I think it's engineered. I'm with you on this. See, I, 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 I'm, I know how these, well, we all know how these guys work. That's a picture of Amy Winehouse on her hands and knees. You're holding it up. This is classic, uh, again, visual comedy for a podcast. You're holding it up. There she is crawling, apparently, towards the bar. And we're told that she has reduced herself to begging for drinks. On her hands no, and knees. stealing them. Stealing drinks, right, you know. I think the phrase, if it was, a, it was a, a, a wedding somewhere in the UK, it would be known as mind-sweeping, wouldn't it? Is that what's called, mind-sweeping? Travel the tables looking for half-empty glasses. Mind-sweeping? <laughs> I've never heard that before. Didn't you love new expressions? <laughs> I, I was going into uh, the West End uh, yesterday, and I went past a lingerie shop, and I saw an expression I'd, I'd never seen before, and it said, and there's loads of really flimsy-looking bras designed, I think, probably for girls to buy, really for themselves, for Valentine's Day, and it said... No more boulder holders. Which is obviously the expression. Never heard that one. No, is that my really out of date? Yeah. It's obviously expression for a big solid old corset, a I, boulder. I find the, no, fact, no, that, course, I find the no. fact that you think that those those that particular type of lingerie is designed for young ladies to buy themselves really sweet. Because <laughs> 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 if, if it's the one thing my limited experience of buying lingerie for women is they don't like those sort of things that you think, ah, I don't know who buys them. Day. They look ridiculous. Another great expression is my sister-in-law's joined a, have I told this? She's joined a, 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 a Religious knitting, cult? An no, all-girl no. knitting group oh, right. uh, in the island of Sark. It's the new black, lives. apparently. It's known as Stitch and Bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Stitch and Bitch. You just sit there doing knitting and just gossiping about That's the crane driver on <laughs> the port. It's the 1950s yeah. come back. It's, it's just what my mother used to I do. I love it. Because <laughs> so knitting is making a comeback, isn't it? I think it's on, it's, it's, yeah, yeah. It is on yeah. upswing. I was, I was talking to somebody from Future Publishers who, uh, mm. very successfully publishing knitting magazines. Who would have ever guessed that that one would, it's fantastic, that, isn't it? that one would yeah. return? So you think Amy Winehouse well, I mean, I, 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 my, towards the bar? My experience, I remember in the... Put up job. 
I had some pals in the um, in in politics, I suppose you would say, a few years ago, and I spent a bit of time hanging around with them. And I was most fascinated by the degree to which they had to. Were they um, in government, opposition, or the local parish council? Mark? Were, they, <laughs> were they the prime minister? <laughs> That's great. Yes, they're trying to get elected for Crondle versus <laughs> Fleet Hampshire. No, the, um, I, I, amazed by how it was somebody's job to walk all corridors that a significant, uh, politician would be walking in the society of photographers in order to try and, um, detect any possible photographic setups that could be used out of context. Yeah. If that's too long a way. Classic example is, I can remember Michael Foote, I think it was, going to a hospital, and they sent their runner ahead to go through it, and worked out there was one corridor which the word psychiatric ward appeared <laughs> on, a, on a sign, right, with an arrow pointing downwards, which meant, as you were approaching it, it meant at the end of this corridor is the psychiatric When you get there, it tells you to turn right. And the, actually, in this case, the person didn't notice that, and therefore the photographers did, and sure enough, pictures of foot were taken with the word psychiatric war with an arrow pointing to his own head, which appeared on the cover of Private Eye two weeks later. Now, it is somebody's job to try and work out how you can possibly... You know, I can remember, I can remember Alistair Campbell saying that um, Tony Blair should not be photographed with Damon Albarn, because the headline would be Tony Blur. And it didn't really matter what happened in this meeting, what the conversation was. It would all descend from the headline, yeah, Tony yeah. Blur. Yeah. And that's the way you have to think. So, I, 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 you know, once you've got a photograph, you can engineer any story around it you want to. Did you see the piece in... Um, um, so you I think Amy Winehouse, trying to find a missing contact lens, has now become a kind of mind-sweeping catastrophe well, that, for... That could, be what, that could be what she's doing. Siren. That's why Mark Allen will never be a sub on the Daily Mail, will he? No, 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 no. Amy Winehouse Too looks moral. for contact lens. Yeah, yeah, it's great. It's, it's just behind you, Amy. Poor old Amy. Yes, I need my glasses to find my glasses, etc. You know, that thing about uh, political faux pas in photographs is really. There was a piece in the uh, Guardian this week which uh, took a shot of um, the David Cameron interview in his ha uh, his house and the bookshelf behind his uh, behind the where he was sat, the seat that he was sat on, and it actually went through saying these books were most definitely all placed there by Put his there. PR. You know, there were political histories. There were kind of like yeah, yeah, yeah. the, the, the oh, thing on austerity Britain that yeah, you mentioned. Yeah, yeah. Incredibly. I always noticed incredibly that. Incredibly. You can almost guarantee when, that if you took those off the shelves, the spine would crack yes. when you opened Whenever them. anybody's interviewed on the television in front of a row of books, I always have to look at the books. And I, I go sideways, you know, thinking, have I got any of those? And nobody's ever got a copy of the Da Vinci Code or Harry Potter or whatever, you know. <laughs> Do you think they're actually real books or can you just rent for the Day. Well, you can. A, 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 a sheet of, of hardboard upon which the backs of these things Wouldn't have just be been great. glued. Well, people what, what impression are you trying to make? So I'm trying to literary, a little bit sexy, you know, late 30s. And along will come a, a load of things with exactly the right books for the People occasion. used to do that, didn't they? You used to be able to, in furniture shops, you used to be able to buy a yard of books. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Which weren't real. The, 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 oh, no, they, they, they were real, I think, when you just bolt them in. Oh, you probably do both, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're probably buy real books. They're so glued yeah. together. Yeah, because glue, glue, yeah, you can't open one. So, I want to know what Matt's learned. Yeah, well, go on, um, yeah. I've learnt two things. I've learnt, uh, I've learnt a very good phrase, which was a put-down of uh, former England cricket captain Peterson, <laughs> which was that I read, and I'm sorry, I can't remember which member of the, which, uh, member of the cricket um, reporting, reporters club came out with this, but it's absolutely fantastic. He's the, he said he was the sort of man who would have joined the Navy so the world could see him. Oh, yes, I read that. That's a great line. <laughs> which I thought was a fantastic <laughs> <very good. laughs> 
That's very good. You can adapt that to all kinds of people. Um, and the other thing I learned was the perils of using social media to publicise your brand. Um, I don't know if you've come across a, 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 a kind of craze that's sweeping the internet. Um, it's a site called Twitter. It's a social networking site. And it's basically... Did you say you get, super media? Is that what you just said? No, social media. So, sorry, social media. Matt, I think now... So we're going to stop saying... You're going to explain... You know, because I'm fairly au fait with these things, but you know, I'm, a, I'm aware of the fact that there are many more things that I'm not au fait with. And uh, I want to know what Twitter is. Twitter, putting it very simply, if you're au fait with Facebook, is just like the Facebook um, status update. It tell, you tell people what you're doing at that given moment. So it's just one line. So it's 140 characters, to be precise. Um, and you can text it, you can fill it in on the website. There's lots of little, different little applications so you can have it on your... Um... Right, we get it. So it's, 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 it's very techy at the moment. It's used a lot by, uh, by kind of tech, tech geeks and stuff, but it's kind of crossing over. There's a really interesting thing, Mad Men, uh, the new series of Mad Men in the States. Each one of the characters has got a Twitter feed. And what it is is people set up their own feeds and then you subscribe to them. or you, you know, So, you so who's follow. doing the feed, a scriptwriter or so something? So the scriptwriters. But oh, it's got, really? For, for instance, well, that's interesting. Um, the uh, the wife of the main character is just doing these fantastic things. That she's like saying things like doing the washing up, smoking a cigarette, difficult in a marigold. <laughs> and you know, yeah. there's just all these oh, like ten thirty in the morning, about to, the, the, you know, all the ad guys are about to drink their first martini. Yeah, of so, course. So, yeah, of course. But so anyway, what were we going? What were you going to say? So, so people like Jonathan Ross have got Twitter feeds. People like Stephen Fry have got Twitter feeds, and these are all kind of work out. Uh, quite well. Uh, Britney Spears had a Twitter, has a Twitter feed, but unfortunately what happened to Britney Spears' Twitter feed uh, last week was it got hacked. Uh, got hacked by somebody who sent out to all of her fans and all the people who subscribe to her Twitter feeds. And it's normally just kind of like, hi, going shopping, blah, 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 having a really nice time. This, this particular update... Said, I'm liking this story. Hi, y'all. Brit here. Just wanted to update you all on the size of my vagina. It's about four <laughs> feet wide with no. razor-sharp teeth. Oh, no! Oh, my God! Oh, I'm shocked and stunned. <laughs> so, does this appear on people's this pop, on people's phones or on? No, this pops up pops up on their desktop. <laughs> on their desktop. So, like loads of twelve-year-old girls. Yes. Will have received oh, yes. that. Uh, yes. Oh God. Britney's organisation obviously quickly came out and apologised for the offence that, that that may have caused, and they kind of made sure that the Twitter feed was uh, was more secure. Oh next my time. God! But, so somebody just hacked in. Yeah. Dear God, so the perils. That's extraordinary. What did you learn this week, Mark? I learned, uh, this isn't a philosophical thing at all. I learned something about Frank Zappa. And it was, I've always been rather fascinated by this uh, piece of footage that appears on YouTube. You can get it on YouTube. It's 1963. It's Frank Zappa. I don't know if you've ever seen it. On oh. the Steve Allen show, oh, yeah, playing yeah. a bicycle. <laughs> and uh, for anyone who hasn't seen it, I'm sure that's a lot of people actually. Zappa, aged, I suppose, 23, rather preppy, with a, a little tiny button jacket. Um, Mark, you've, you've become undressed. <laughs> My shirt seems to come undone. Sorry, just I'm talking about saucy mix. I'm talking about. Well, metal never concentrate. Right, no. Calm down. It's a stomach like a washboard. <laughs> Thank you. Because a washboard that has been buckled. <laughs> washboard is run over by a large truck. No, um, he appears at 23 years old on this show, and he plays a bicycle, and it's the most extraordinary piece of footage because he manages to send himself up but make his serious points that he is an avant-garde composer the bicycle is a valid instrument and he gets the steve allen show is like the kind of letterman of the west coast at the time i assume a bit of a bit of a chance a bit of a wise guy in charge he managed to get this guy's orchestra and band to play along with him 
and gets them to places. I would like it if you tried to avoid using conventional tones. So the host's got but oh, you got the right guys here. Just business as usual, guys. You know, that kind of thing. But he does manage this. The piano player has to put something on the strings of his piano, like an ashtray or something, to make this discordant sound. And, you know, A, it was extraordinary that he did this in 1963 and did it and, and carried it off as, a, 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 seriously, as making an avant-garde point. But B, the thing that I didn't know before is that he had actually had a little bit of success with a song called Tijuana Surf, which was a kind of ironic, it was the number one record actually in Mexico. Um, <laughs> a brilliant piece of Zappa engineering, you know, and he was incredibly ambitious, but he realised that he was never going to get anywhere unless he'd get on the television. The Beatles had just been on the television, uh, and that had what was it, launched their career in America. Elvis Presley's career was entirely launched by television. Um, and he realised the only way to do this was to think up, he couldn't get on as a composer playing his own music. He thought, I will think up some gimmicky thing that still somehow reflects really well on me. And, gave, and so he applied to the Steve Allen show and said, I play the bicycle. You can imagine our chat shows were, oh, here's a quirky little <laughs> idea. But the other brilliant thing about it is that Alan himself is obviously aware of us. He says, what did this guy do? Did he just think, I'm going to think up some quirky, quirky idea to get myself on the Steve Allen show, and here we are? Well, maybe that's it. So you think, How? this is just wheels within wheels of kind of irony and knowingness, you know. And I just thought it was absolutely extraordinary. And I thought that, I just thought I was really impressed. So because now, go. now we've had all this experience. I mean, this was how long ago? Say 40, I can't work it out. 45 years ago, am I right? Yeah. 45 years ago. And now your average rock band simply hasn't got the faintest idea without even the most highly paid PR, or well, with the most highly paid PR in the industry. Only then do they have some idea of how to move forward and how to get exposure. This guy was making it up entirely on his own. Absolutely brilliant. And does history or YouTube record uh, as how this um, bicycle playing went down? Is there an audience kind of laughing? There's an audience, and you can hear the audience or, yeah. kind of laughing and applauding. And it, but Zappa's, Zappa's, it's so perfectly pitched because he realises he's a bit quirky and he adopts this slightly wounded tone towards the end. I, I, I'm, sir, so I'm, you know, I'm trying to play my, that kind of, you know, I'm trying to play my music here. I'm sorry, sorry. I thought you meant he adopted a wounded tone on the bicycle. Oh, on the bicycle, that, that would, would be. Wah. Yeah, wah, wah, wah. That's wounded. Yeah. No, it's different. So, anyways, I think it's, it's well worth watching, I would say. YouTube, it's very, says, YouTube plays a bicycle. says something very profound about music on the television, doesn't it? You know, that the, what television is always interested in is not the musical part of it at all. Yeah. You know, it's completely the visual part of well, it. Well, it's... Oh, yeah. I, I grasped that in 1962. Yeah, yeah. I, I completely. And it, I mean, it's like the, one of the big success stories of shows like Later with Jules. You know, the, the big success stories are always the Sea Six Steves or the Duffies. You know, they are never going to be the um, massive uh, horn section or the big African group with a great sprawling lineup because... But you just can't contain that on a television set. No. And so you can't hear it very well. So what you're saying is that, that kind of is that Howard Jones' uh, kind of <laughs> mime artist throwing off his mental chains was actually kind of ahead of the game. And I, should, I guess they do. Should, I think Chad school. did Howard I, Jones I, a load I really of do. You've met TV producers, and if you, if you go to a TV producer and say, does this bloke with a kind of a haircut like a cockatoo who's made the yeah. synthesizer pop record, would you feel like booking him? Their, their eyes glaze over. If you say, and I'll tell you what, he's got a mate... He dresses up as a mime artist and ties himself in chains, and which he throws off as he I does the song. Tick. Why is that any different from Frank Zappa playing the bicycle? Absolutely. It's not. He dresses. Sorry, he dresses up in mental chains. <laughs> Get this man his scary <laughs> makeup. <laughs> we got a winner. We got a keeper. <laughs> Do you remember Nash the Slash? 
I do remember Nash the I Slash. I remember the Slash. Of course I do. Yeah. Nash the Slash and was an artist signed to some Virgin label in whenever we're talking about the 80s. 80s, yeah. Uh, and his, he, he played the heavily amplified fiddle and played rather kind of gothic uh, surf music, I suppose. And, but he's, he's, um. It's a great instrument. Not, not many records in that genre when you go into, uh, HMV now. L- I think the Slash pretty much called the market music section. I think he's pretty much top of the heap. You can't be familiar. If you were looking for heavily amplified fiddle operatives. You mean you don't know Jack Nietzsche's The Lonely Surfer? No. You should go and look that out today. It's wonderful. Anyway, he used to dress in a top hat, uh, and a white suit and, he entirely wrapped in bandages, wasn't he? He was. Invisible man style. Invisible man. But I he, always, sorry, he did, but I always thought he completely ripped off the residents who couldn't get arrested despite having heads <laughs> like eyeballs. Surely they should have been all over the TV. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's the slash. He didn't take off, but, you know, he got a lot of TV dates. He did. In the, you know, in the time that he, he was around. The Word. A magazine, a website, a podcast, a way of life. We note this week the passing of... William Zant Zinger. Oh, yes. Who died in the United States at the age of 69. It's astonishing to reflect that he's still, he was still alive only a few days ago, because this is a person who um, loomed very large in the, in the imaginations of young chaps listening to Bob Dylan in 1964, didn't he, Mark? That would be me. And me. That would be me, however old I would have been, 11 or 10 or 9 or something, I can't remember. So what's the story? Was, uh, well, the story was, I, I must admit, I remember hearing The Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll, which he recorded in, in October 1963, and I think was on Times They Are Changing, which came out in early 64. And he recorded it as a direct reaction to a news story he'd read about a young tobacco farmer who had appeared at a, a as in the words of the song, at a Baltimore Hotel Society gathering. And was a kind of aristocrat, uh, rich, white guy with clearly no respect for the black workers, certainly the ones uh, in, involved in the, in the tobacco farm and its uh, and, and extensions, and was in the habit of, of hitting people, the black workers, with canes. He had a toy cane. He had a kind of toy cane. And at this particular event, one of the waitresses at the event was a 51-year-old mother of 10, mother of 11, actually, I think. Dylan says for some reason she's got 10 children in the song. And she doesn't bring him his bourbon quick enough in order to impress his uh, white um, friends. He thrashes her with his cane, and she dies later on of a brain hemorrhage. And what happened was he was tried, and not only did he get no jail sentence, I think he got six months suspended sentence. That was also delayed for two weeks so that he could attend and oversee the opening of the tobacco harvest. And the only community service he was required to do, I think, was was to wash up for a day in some kitchen somewhere for some council house, you know. So effectively, this guy got off scot-free. And Dylan wrote this absolutely incredible... I can remember when it came out, it was being so moving, the most extraordinary song, and it was adopted immediately by the civil rights movement and has become, I think, in fact, I'm working on a piece about it for, for Word magazine, I think it's become the greatest and most successful and best-known um, protest song of all time, actually. Uh, and I think it had an incredible effect. I mean, the interesting things about it are... Dylan actually changed the story very slightly. Get away. Yes. <laughs> you know, he, he actually, he actually obviously makes it out to be slightly worse than, than it is. He changed the spelling of Zanzinger's name, uh, possibly to avoid 
any kind of legal repercussion. <laughs> it's astonishing. He actually spells his name. Change one later. That'll be fine. That'll be changed. I know. <laughs> they can't tell you. Uh, I know. But and Zanzinger became immensely bitter about it because he's been hounded all his life. Uh, although later, if he didn't commit all the crimes that Dylan claims he committed, which I suspect he probably did actually. Um, and we can say that now. <laughs> uh, he also was involved in a, an appalling case in the late uh, 80s, I think, where he um, defrauded various very, very poor black migrant workers uh, uh, out of the mortgages and charged them extra mortgages. Uh, so, he, you know, this man was, did not cover himself in glory. But it was just an... <laughs> Nice it's just, no, but it was just fantastic to see these pictures with the paper, and there he was, you know, being, 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 being carted away, handcuffed. But as Tom Mirror would have said, did he love his mother? <laughs> I don't, possibly. I just, I just wanted to go to, because the other kind of death that I noted this week was the death of one of the last four surviving British soldiers who fought in the Great War, and I'm just wondering whether, yeah. whether actually, at some point, we're going to be mourning the death of the last person living named in a Dylan lyric. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> It'll take a while, you Probably. see. This is interesting because um, I, yeah, Zensinger's still alive until a few days ago. Um, the guy who sh- shot Meg Garevers, uh, the, in, as, as recorded in the Bob Dylan song, Only a Pawn in the Game, uh, only died a few years ago. Byron Beckworth died in jail. Um, are people like Hurricane Carter still alive? Oh, I don't know. Hurricane Carter was a story too, wasn't it? Because <laughs> Dylan's because uh, Bob's record on miscarriages of justice has not always been false. Not understood. Let's be fair. <laughs> you know, would you choose? You know, it's uh, just Bob as the Minister of Justice. You know, Bob is going to decide about ticklish cases of law. <laughs> I don't know if you would. Free Shannon's mum. That was a, 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 a <laughs> that's a song that he apparently didn't release in the ever. Was she called Shannon? I can't remember. That. <laughs> no, I don't. I, I don't know. Davy Moore was all right though. Remember, do you remember who killed David? Well, he, he was safely dead, but yeah, he was safely dead, dead and was, died uh, in the yeah, box. And also, he doesn't, uh, you know, obviously, it's a, it's a, it's a hypothetical argument. You know, was he was he killed? Was David Moore the boxer who died of a brain hemorrhage as a result of a, in the ring? Actually, just after a boxing match, was he killed by the media? Was he killed by the critics? I mean, that was what the song was right, about. Yeah, wasn't yeah. It? Um, it was a kind of who killed Cock Robin um, uh, uh, analogy. Um, but no, it was, I thought it was fascinating. It was fascinating to see that this guy, and I felt rather good about it actually. I thought this guy had obviously been just been haunted by the song all his life. Isn't it? I don't know why I felt a teenage, my old sense of teenage rebellion just oh, kind God. of reawakened. I thought, great! Great! Dylan stuck it to the man! Yes, 40 this years later. This bastard was going around his, his tobacco farm first... with his collar turned up, you know, possibly wearing a false beard. <laughs> In order, and eventually he was tracked down by a Dylanologist. And the, the, the idea of being tracked down by a Dylanologist, it really puts Loking the fear of God into me. <laughs> and I'm fond of Dylan, but I've met a few Dylanologists. You know, that, that would be, a, you'd be just bored to death, wouldn't you? I think, about really else. I think you'll find on track three of the times they are a-changing. <laughs> but anyway, go on. No, I, see, I remember it's one of the first lyrics that I can remember remembering all of. I could recite it all. I could recite the whole thing. You know right what I mean? I, yeah, before I knew poetry. I saw a jolt of pain shoot behind the eyelids of Matt Hall. The Word. A magazine, a website, a podcast, a way of life. Now, do we... I note the last night on the television, Minder made its reappearance. And we hear also that Martin Clunes is going to appear in a revival of... Reginald Perrin. Are we delighted? 
Matt, you go first, because I'm not delighted. Well, I, I, I <laughs> Why don't you affect delight? No, I, I, I'm not going to affect delight. What I'm going to say is I'm not really bothered about... People get up in arms about remakes of TV series. People get up in arms about remakes of films. I don't really see why. I think it's, a, it's, a, it's an artistic tradition. You know, people did, There wasn't one, the first um, performance of Hamlet, and after that it was stopped, and everyone said, you can't possibly do that again, that's already been done. It, with films, you know, some of the great films, like Rio Bravo, one of my, you know, has, has been made, remade in various different guises, kind of five or six times. John Carpenter's made like at least two or three versions of it. And I don't see what problem there is in kind of remaking a TV series. The problem is, if it was a fantastically, artistically unimprovable first go-round, which I think, you know, you could make a case for mind around Reginald Perrin and saying, how are they going to bring something new to this? I what do you think, Mark? I think it's an absolute, utter, total waste of time and disgrace. <laughs> I think... I say, totally, say, what, say what you mean, Mark. Totally. And I don't want to pussyfoot around the subject here, Matt. What? Are we bankrupt, Dave? Are we completely and utterly bereft I think one look of at Saturday any night TV might give you the answer to that question. There's an article in the new edition of Word magazine uh, which relates to this about... Um, it's about all the, the um, biographical movies, biopics that's coming out this year. There's a movie, as you know, about Che Guevara, if anything's out, it's one about Harvey Milk. Uh, Amelia Earhart, Tolstoy, Nathalie Ayers, um, you know, Charles Darwin. Now, I mean, that's a different thing, but it's still related to the same core, which is we are so terrified and unconfident in the face of this recession that we're going back to brands we all recognise. If I came to you to pitch a film, and my film was a piece of fiction written by Mark Ellen, or the story of Charles Darwin, who actually has a comedian anniversary, I think I know which one you go for, tragically. But there it is. And I think there's a similarity with these remakes, because what it has... Right, here's my... It's like cover versions. Sorry, Dave, you've, I'm annoyed about this. It's like cover versions. How many cover versions are better than the original? Very few. We don't have to name them, but I think the answer is very, very few. In fact, Jeff Buckley's Hallelujah, that's probably the only one. Okay? All right, no, let's just no, end no, it there. No, right? no, no. Okay. No, no. So, how many movies and remakes of television programs are about? Is The Italian Job better than the original? Is 12 Angry Men? Is 101 Dalmatians? Is Assault on Precinct 13? You can stop me at any point. Is Creature no, from but, the Black Lagoon, which is coming out 13. in three months' time, but, is that going to be better than the original? In fact, I can think of only two. King Kong 3, I think, is better than the original. I thought 310 to Yuma, which came out about two years ago, is better than whatever the original was in 1957. It's a better film. Apart from that, I think it's a total and utter dereliction of duty. I really do. Yeah, I cannot believe that we can't find any new ideas. David, Matt, help me here. Okay. It's terrible. Okay, but... Bad. Let me just imagine. Imagine that I'm going to speak on the part of, radio, of Channel Five. Okay. I know what uh, Channel Five are going to say. No, but no, this is what I'm going to say. We can do an hour's cop drama at nine o'clock, and nobody will watch. Or we can do an hour's cop drama, call it Minder, and quite a few people will watch. Or That's we can buy in another episode Sorry? of CSI, and everyone will watch. Or we can invest in a load of guys sitting in some room somewhere lit by a bare light bulb surrounded by full ashtrays and coffee cups and say, can you please write something new? Write the next Dad's Army. You know, write the next, you know, are we being served? I mean, we'll just write something and then don't... Well, except they're not doing that, are they? 
I mean, the people are not short of opportunities to, to do that, but they're not doing it, are they? But, but is that because they're not being encouraged to? Because they're not, I, being, they're not think, getting underwritten? As, I, you know, I would guess if they throw the average bunch of comedy writers in a room and chuck a load of money at them, what they get nowadays is something that is generally edgy rather than something that is like Dad's Army or like Minder, big, broad, family comedy. I, no, I agree that the structure of television has changed and, that, and that obviously you're being invited to produce things for very narrow age groups and that's going to limit things slightly and you're less likely to come up with an absolutely cover-bottomed, across-the-board, mainstream classic success. I understand that. But what breaks my heart, and I, I, I mean, I, you know, we sit on this magazine you know, Word magazine, and we sit there and spend a great deal of time trying to be original. I mean, I can't say that we succeed all the time, but if we think somebody has already done it, we don't do it. We force ourselves to come up with ideas we haven't read anywhere else. And I don't understand. Sorry. I really, really not. It's pathetic. What is the point? What is the point? Well, anyway. Martin Clune, it's going to be Awful. Oh, and the original Perry strikes me as the most ludicrous. How can all. you talk? Because if ever a joke was kind of, it was exhausted by the end of Reginald Perrin, wasn't it? They they carried it on too long. Yeah. You know, the first series was brilliant, and then it wasn't as good afterwards. You know, how you can revive that, I do not know. But anyway, Minder, which was on last night, which I didn't see, but I read the review in the paper on the way in, and it climaxed in what? What happened at the end of Minder, according to the review I read? Because it made me think that this is what used to happen at the end of every cop show in the 1970s. The villains got arrested. The villains, of course, got arrested. arrested. Where did they get arrested? Uh, A very attractive police girl makes a round of tea. Not at all. No, okay. Somebody escapes in an S-type saloon Jaguar. I'm trying to remember what the name of the the unsalubrious bar was. No, uh, what they always did, and it's so true, if you think back to Starsky and Hutch, you think back to Mindy, you think back to Sweeney and and all these things, they ended up in having a a set two in the shell of Battersea Power Station. (laughs) (laughs) What they always did, am I right? Set piece. In the 1970s, he used it five minutes from the end, there'd be a car chase, yeah. wouldn't there? They'd go down normal streets, and then somebody would go down a series of, of odd turnings, which would land them in a bomb site or a disused yeah. docks, yeah, or something like that, where there yeah. was no escape because there was a river or there was a railway yeah. line or something stopping them going any further. The car would be, you know, they'd do a handbrake turn. Yeah. And try to oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. You know, there'd be rubble. Strips of rubber on the everywhere. road. Somebody would get out, go running somewhere else, and, and they'd be chased by Dennis Waterman or whatever, and there'd be a, there'd be a punch-up, loads of brick dust, you're nicked my fine beauty. That was how it finished, wasn't it? It's true, isn't it? Starsky and Hutch was the same. You can write this stuff, Dave. was the same. You're making it sound so easy. No, but it's true. Yeah. Now, what is this because in those days they had loads of derelict land? Yeah. It must be, mustn't it? A few months ago, I saw... It's Waterman um, now. Yes. Go off. <laughs> put your pants on, Sally. You're nicked. Yeah, yeah. um, <laughs> put, put them away, darling. <laughs> um, I was watching an old, an old episode of Minder the other day, a, a few months ago, and the thing that struck me was these were filmed mid-80s, yeah. around what at that point were unsalubrious parts of West London. 
like the far end of the Fulham Road. <laughs> oh, right, really? Which were, were, which were all obviously old kind of... Uh, Victorian. Victorian five, four-storey houses. Right. property. All crumbling rental yeah, properties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Now... <laughs> they couldn't afford to. No, Richard Curtis would open the door and say, please keep the noise down. I'm trying to write. And the other thing Jeremy Paxman would be waving a fist at you. So when they, come out, when they come out of these houses and walk down the road, there are no cars parked on the road. You know, there's like one or two cars oh, down the road. Right. It's not like you couldn't do a car chase down those roads now because no, it's, well, you would never a, get out of second gear for a start. Be like, yeah. <laughs> it'd be dangerous to drive over 25 miles yeah, an hour. So. I also wondered wondered how the kind of changing the economic circumstances had affected Arthur's business. Because, you know, Arthur used to sell microwaves and things like that, didn't he? He used to have a lock-up full of, you know, yeah. cheap merchandise that, but, that nonetheless his clientele couldn't afford. You know, Arthur offered you know, access to a world of luxury you couldn't afford yourself. Well, people have that world of luxury now. You know, people have got mobile phones. People have got off-road vehicles. People go on holiday in Florida or whatever. I know recent events might change some of that. You know, so what the hell is Arthur Daly in the year 2009 going to offer people? You know, missiles? <laughs> Ketamine? <laughs> Yeah, it's DVDs. <laughs> no, I don't. Blu-ray, Blu-ray recorders. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Possibly, okay, That's yeah. Great. Maybe it's that, that scene. Yeah, still so have we got anything else to say? I don't know if we have. It's been real, isn't it? It's been very real. <laughs> Too real. <laughs> Too real. <laughs> Too much perspective. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Details at wordmagazine.co.uk. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTER Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.